Hi, everyone. Welcome to Built for Devs. I'm Lenny Pruce, General Partner at Amplify Partners. This podcast will offer up actionable insights to overcome some of the most challenging aspects of company building. From nailing your initial product to scaling your open source community to getting your commercial offering into customers' hands. You will hear directly from entrepreneurs and operators from the world's leading cloud, dev tools, and distributed systems companies who have solved these challenges firsthand. We're here to help you go from zero to one. In this episode, I speak with Adam Jacob, founder and CEO of The System Initiative. Adam is a pioneer in DevOps and a leading voice for sustainable and free open source communities, having created Chef, the open source infrastructure automation platform, and co-founded the eponymous company, Chef Software. In this episode, Adam defines open source, provides reasons to pursue an open source strategy versus a pure play SaaS model. He discusses the critical role of trust in getting product to market, as well as the explicit and implicit trade-offs between open source and open source adjacent license types. We end with advice for startup founders on how they should think about licensing strategy for their project. Adam is a fountain of information, so enjoy this conversation. Adam, thanks for joining us. We're going to talk about open source and open source strategy, in particular from the context of startups and startup founders. So thanks so much for for coming on. Let's start with some definitions. So what is open source? Do you think of it as a distribution strategy? Is it a product development strategy? How should startup founders think about open source today? Yeah, that's a complex question. So open source itself is... I think really just like what the open source initiative and the open source definition says that it is. So it's like a series of rules that you apply to the way software is licensed that ensures like a basic level of freedom to deal with the software and to build what you want to build. And that's what open source is. In the context of startups, it's usually applied as a channel strategy. So it's a way to capture market share and then bring people into the top of your funnel that then eventually turns them into revenue in the end. So it's important to separate the two out where like when we're talking about open source, we're talking about a series of software that's licensed in a particular way that gives you a particular set of freedoms. We're talking about open source and business. People usually talk about it as like open source business models, but there isn't really an open source business model. We're going to keep using that phrase because everybody does, but it's not a business model. It's a component of a business model. That makes sense. How would you say the role of open source, I guess, as a business strategy or open source as a business strategy, how has that evolved over the last decade, particularly now with the advent of cloud computing? Yeah. You know, the biggest evolution is that early on, like let's say, whatever, 20 years ago, like Xamarin, which is one of the earliest open source companies I can remember. So that was like Nat Friedman and Miguel de Acasa, right? And they launched an open source company and they made red carpet and it was all this stuff. And that was like the first venture backed open source company I can remember. And it was very cool and super inspiring, but also nobody had any real understanding of how that was really going to work. We had like Linux distributions and those Linux distributions sort of did things the way that they did it. And then people's actual level of comfort with the impact of open source, the idea that by being open and by building that huge community at the top of your business funnel, that you are creating more value for the company than you would by closing yourself off and perhaps having a better time monetizing the bottom of the funnel, but the total size of the funnel is smaller. That's really changed. Like that used to be a pretty radical thing that you had to convince people of. You had to be like, no, no, like this dynamic is real. It super works. Here's the evidence. And people just wouldn't believe you. Like they just didn't 
fundamentally believe that that was true. I think now you don't really have to convince people of that. You know, you see companies getting funded much later into the stages of the company with much larger check sizes where their traction isn't paying customers, but is instead like community size. It's it's size of the reach. And that's because people and specifically people in venture now understand that creating a community with that kind of reach is also the kind of traction you need to see so that later that converts to revenue. And so we see now that the dominant model for monetizing open source is to take your project and ultimately operate it, basically expose it as a cloud service. Yeah. And so when you're doing that, you're not in some ways kind of negating the, I guess at very least the the deployment model of the project where the whole point is it's open, people take the bits, they can customize and run them yourselves. If you're Mm -hmm. taking that away from them, what becomes the role of that open source distribution strategy? Oh, what a good question. Yeah, so I think the thing you have to be confident in is that if you build a product, so when I say product, I'm not talking about software. So engineers love to think that the product is their software, that the software they type is the thing. That is not true. Like the product is all of the stuff that's required to get that thing into the hands of a consumer. So it's packaging, it's distribution channels, it's sales process, it's marketing, the go-to-market, all that stuff, that's product. Software, it's just software. You download it, you run it, you do whatever you want to do with it. It's not a product, right? It's just software. Like, awk isn't a product, it's software, right? Maybe you could build an awk product? I don't know. My point is that, like, it, it, it's not that clean cut. And so when we think about product, if you're the people who generate the product, so that we would call that the upstream. So if you're the upstream, and in particular... Hopefully you're the upstream where it originates from, that there's no one upstream of you. There's some tactics you can run to create an upstream. Red Hat does this really well, but let's put that aside for a minute. If you're the upstream, so the software comes from you and also the product comes from you, then what you have is control over how it goes into the world and you're going to be better at it than everybody else. So when you think about running a SaaS with your product, obviously you're the right people to run a SaaS probably because you're the ones who understand the product best. You're the ones who put all that stuff together. You're the ones who built the software. You control its destiny. And so your ability to operate that for other people is really great. And you can provide that as a piece of value. What we tend to do, and what a lot of people are doing now, is restricting that community growth by saying, well, except I don't want anybody who competes with me to also run the service. I don't want Amazon to run a service, or I don't want somebody who would use my software to compete with me to incorporate that software and like get it for free. And that's a valid enough point of view, like fair enough. But when you do that, what you're doing is constricting the size of the community at the top. And you're inviting a different kind of competition because when you're successful, you will have competition. There's no such thing as a successful company or successful business that doesn't have other people also competing in the market roughly identically to what they do. And so, you know, GitHub has GitLab. It just happens. They didn't for a long time, but now they do. And there's no avoiding it. Even though there's not a whole lot of art in the GitLab business model, right? But it was pretty clear what to do. So when you close yourself off that way, what you're doing is inviting really direct competition. You're inviting people to build features that are separate from you, where you're going in different directions. Whereas when you stay open, sort of regardless of how you sell it, What you're doing is inviting competition. You're inviting collaboration, which then allows you to compete on ground that you control because you're the upstream. So like, yeah, you can get value from me and maybe you're better than me at one specific niche or you sell it a little differently. But in the end, if the product comes from me, I'm probably going to get the lion's share of the money. 
And that's really the calculus you're making. You're deciding like, what kind of competition do I want to invite? And what kind of dynamics do I want to create in the market? And which way you choose is probably really dependent on what kind of technology or what kind of product you're bringing into the world, right? The more transformative it is, probably the smarter it is to stay closed for a little while longer because it'll take people a while to catch up and like you can sort of move in that direction. If you're GitLab and what you're doing is creating a GitHub clone that's open source, well, probably should open source that real fast because who needs a GitHub clone that's proprietary? Yeah, and so maybe just to be really explicit about it, if I'm a founder and I've got this data warehouse technology and I'm starting at T equals zero, what are the why would I choose to pursue an open source route if I know that I'm ultimately going to be capturing value by running a SaaS? What do I gain by being open source versus just starting off building as a SaaS from day one? Yeah, I think what you can gain is if you can make it so that the software is itself useful outside the SaaS. What you then gain is the ability for people to use that software to become a part of the community. And by being a part of the community to then further create validation that that technology is worth having. So like if I build a great data warehouse and no one uses it, who cares, (laughs) right? Like it's just not that interesting. But if I build a great data warehouse and I can convince I don't know, Akamai. I just pulled Akamai out of thin air to use it. Then suddenly that's interesting. I'm like, oh, okay. Now I want to hear more about this data warehouse technology Akamai is using. Now, whether they're using your SaaS or whether they're using open source software that you produced, like in the end, that value flowed to you, right? Like what people are looking at is your company, it's your software, it's your product, right? And so that style of reach, when you, especially when you target the enterprise, like enterprise sales takes a long time six months, a year, right? And it would be normal. And those sales cycles are always best when they're already using the kit. Sometimes they'll be using your kit and it still takes six months or a year, right? And so if that can happen in open source in a low touch way, and then the conversation is, how do I buy this from a vendor who can like certify my supply chain, who can manage it for me, who can lower that cost, that end sales process gets like a lot simpler. So It's about reach and it's about the noise that gets it into people's ears that says, this is technology you should use. It's stuff you can trust, right? And if it's not open source, that's fine, but you have to create that sound some other way, right? You're going to have to create, you know, targeted advertising. You're going to need to like get it out into the world somehow. And you got to figure out what that's going to be. Yeah. I I guess the way I would think about it is communities are built on trust and the open source strategy short circuits that trust dynamic that allows people to adopt your technology with more confidence. And so... Yes, and and that trust dynamic is now about individuals more than it is about corporations. Right. So if I'm selling you proprietary software, I can build trust, but I build trust to the vendor. I build trust to the corporation. If I'm open sourcing it, I'm building trust to the individuals, the people who work at Facebook, the people who work at Akamai, the people who work Mm. wherever... There's a trust network that's happening between the individuals who are collaborating together, either as users or in the community. That's a very different dynamic than I sold software to your SVP and now you're trying to use it and it sucks and you have to call me for help. And so I get on a plane and come to your house and help you figure out how to like use my data warehouse. That's a super different dynamic. And it's not that one's better than the other, but you have to know which one you're doing and they're very different. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. 
Getting into something a bit more mundane, there's a lot of talk and a lot of consternation about open source license types. So can you maybe yeah. just walk us through the main OSS and OSS adjacent license types and then talk about the implicit and explicit trade-offs between some of the most permissive versus the least? Yeah. In open source licensing land, there's a couple of things you want to be aware of. So you want to be aware of first copyright. So that's like ownership essentially, right? Then there's trademarks, which is the specific dress for that thing. So like, you know, I have this software, I own it, I can do what I want with it. That's copyright. I can call it chef or system initiative or whatever. That's a trademark, right? Like I'm the only one who can produce things that have that name. Then there's like patents, right? Which are the way we do this thing is special and we have some proprietary way we do it. And then we hold that secret. So when you're looking at open source licenses, you're looking at all how they relate to all three of those things. Most of the time, they're only dealing with copyright and maybe they're dealing with patents. So you have like things like the MIT license, which is copyright, basically says, hey, as the owner of this thing, you can do whatever you want, take it, go with God. But it doesn't really say anything about the other stuff. And then you have like the Apache license, which is much more explicit about all that stuff. So it says, hey, take this, do what you want. Here's what the copyright looked like. It came from this person. Here's the trademark things you're allowed to do with it, which is nothing. And here's the patent coverage, which says, if I included some patented technology inside this software, you have a license to that technology and I'm not going to like sue you for it. So then you have the GPL, so the copyleft licenses. So those are about using the openness of the software to force more openness. So essentially the way to think about it is if I use that software and combine it with my own, then in particular combining, which is complicated and too long to cover on a short podcast, the results also need to be free software. They also need to then allow, be under the GPL or a similar license. And there's variants of that that go all the way to the network boundary. So the, the Faro GPL says that that extends all the way to consumption of that thing as a network service in very high level terms without a whole bunch of detail. So like open source licensing people, I'm sure will quibble with my summary, but that's a pretty reasonable summary. So then from there, you have a set of commercial licenses, proprietary licenses that have some of the mimic some of open sources availability of the source code specifically, but they tend to limit things like derivative work. So a derivative work is like, I take that software and I build another one or I repackage it or I do something else with it. So those are the things you see with like cockroach or elastic or all of those things. And what they're doing is essentially closing off people's ability to use the software for particular ends, usually making money, right? And saying, you're not allowed to make money if you compete with me on this software. And in those cases, it's not open source anymore. What it is, is proprietary software that lets you see the source code, which is fun or whatever, I guess. My own bias is that like, I dislike those licenses kind of deeply because I think they've lost faith in the thing that makes open source so special and really all the value you get as leverage. But whatever, smart people disagree with me. I guess the founders of those companies would say that they are trying to prohibit AWS or some of the giant utility cloud providers from capturing a disproportionate amount of value from their and their community's work. Yeah, for um, sure. And so yep. you disagree with that, why? Because I think what they're actually doing is not stopping AWS from taking money out of their pocket. All they're doing is making sure AWS takes money out of their pocket by not making their community bigger. If you are CockroachDB and you believe that CockroachDB is so much better than every database offering AWS has, I got news for you. It's not that much better, right? 
what it is is different and it has different characteristics. And so what's going to happen is if Cockroach gets big enough, AWS is 100% going to compete directly with CockroachDB. All you've done is made sure that it won't be CockroachDB. You've made certain that none of that value will flow to CockroachDB. But is AWS going to compete with you in databases or queues or systems management or monitoring or observability? Absolutely. They are a shark. They go where the food is and they eat it. So like they're going to go to the food and they're going to eat the food. Okay, now they're eating food that's not your food. So what you're not getting any more from them is a lift, right? You're not going to get to go on stage and hang out with Werner and have him talk about how your technology is the best database technology they've ever seen. And they're so excited to partner with you to launch AWS CockroachDB Live. Instead, they're going to stand up and say, we're going to kick the shit out of those CockroachDB guys because our customers demanded that we have a globally distributed Postgres database And so that's what AWS has now launched. And so will Azure. And so will Microsoft. Because all those companies, all that they do is look at the market. When it gets big enough, they launch a service and they take some money down. It's not personal. It's just the way it is. It goes back to your point about inviting more a certain type of competition. Yeah. Like all you're doing is shifting the kind of competition you're going to get from AWS. The idea that you're stopping AWS from competing with you is the most naive shit I've ever heard in my life. AWS is 100% going to compete with you. Of course they are. The only reason they don't compete with you is you're too small and they don't care. But if you get big enough, I promise you, they will compete with you because that's what's supposed to happen. Like, it's fine. It means you're winning. So take your winnings and whatever, be stoked because you won. And instead, we get all tied up in knots about like who's supposed to win. Oh my God. If you build a company and it turns out to be Elasticsearch, you won. You rang the bell. You got everything you ever wanted. And the idea that you're mad because you didn't get enough of it, it's just gross. I don't like it. It's controversial that I feel that way probably, I suppose. But like, I don't get it. Last question. And this is the proverbial you know, advice question. But if you're mm-hmm. a developer and you're working on a new project you're really excited about, what is the licensing strategy that you would go with? What is the licensing strategy that you would take? Yeah. I mean, I would start not by talking about licensing strategy. I'd talk about business strategy. So I would look Mm -hmm. at what the kind of product is that I'm building and what the market is for that software and how my software relates to that market. So, you know, the more transformative the software, the less likely I would be to take an open source strategy because I can hold my moat longer, essentially, right? Not because it would never be open source, but because as soon as I open source it, I'm inviting competition that otherwise it might be better for me for a minute to sort of keep my secrets to myself. Do you know what I mean? Eddie Van Halen, when he figured out how to tap on the guitar and play solos, turned his back to the audience and played the solo. So like you might decide that that's the right thing to do because you can tap on a guitar and nobody else can. doesn't mean nobody's going to figure out how to tap on a guitar. They totally will. But if you can keep them at bay for two years longer, that's like a significant advantage. But once you're through those questions, then it's about, to me, once you commit to an open source strategy, the thing to do is commit as much as you possibly can. So the more you try to protect yourself from that open source community, the harder everything gets. So everything gets more difficult. The product is more difficult. Community management gets harder. Sales gets harder. And so I tend to recommend that what people should do is adopt a liberal license like the Apache license, and then they should separate the software from the product. So they should make it clear that the only person who can create the product is the company. If it comes from, I'm wearing an at the gates t-shirt. So if I build software called at the gates, then what at the gates requires 
is that I'm the only person who can make a build that's called at the gates. And if you get it from me, then you have to accept it on my terms of distribution, at which point I can charge you whatever I want for it, all of that stuff. If you wanted to take the software and do whatever you want with it, you could, but you couldn't call it at the gates. You'd have to call it, you know, Lennyland. And that's usually what I recommend. Where people tend to land is not there because it's a little too aggressive. <laughs> and so tend, what they tend to do is split the difference. So they tend to like open source enough value so that someone could use it and get value from it and the community can grow. And then they hold back something that they think is more valuable and keep that proprietary. That's open core. That can be an okay choice, but I think it just makes your life harder. And sorry, that begs a little bit of a follow-up question, which is... Mm. What is your stance on foundation-led open source? Should you, do, as a founder or the creator of a project, it sounds like your strategy of choice would preclude you from actually going the foundation route. Yes, almost never do I think the right thing for you to do is stick your valuable software in a foundation. And the reason is that we're back to who the upstream is. So the advantage of putting it in a foundation is that the foundation can invite collaboration from a broader set of people than you might otherwise have access to. It also, though, implies that the product, the software you're producing, needs to have an output that's an equivalency between you and the other people collaborating with you in the foundation. And when you're small, which startups are small, you actually need to keep that control. Because if Microsoft comes along or Amazon comes along and is an equal peer with you in the creation of the upstream, you've lost the one thing that allows you to outcompete them. Because you know you're going to be competed with. It's not like they're not going to use the software if it's valuable. They totally are. But if we're peers in its governance structure, if we're peers in how that thing works, then what happens is they're absolutely going to outmonetize you on the software you're putting more effort into creating than they are, which is bad. And it's funny because that's in contrast to the closing it off by saying you can't use it or you can't collaborate, like they'll still use it and they'll still collaborate with you. But when you put it in the foundation, you've shifted the control of the upstream and the brand and the product in a way that you don't actually need to do when you're small. And I think hurts your long-term ability to monetize and to sort of own that community. There is a move you can make, which is called a midstream. So Red Hat does this with OpenShift. So OpenShift is not Kubernetes, except that it is, right? So what they've done is created this midstream. It's downstream of Kubernetes, but it takes all the Kubernetes components, takes a few other things from outside, smooshes it together, and creates a new upstream that's called OpenShift. And there's an open source version of OpenShift. I don't remember what it's called. Then there's the OpenShift that they actually brand. And by doing that, they now created a thing where they can create product value, and they do. And they sell a ton of OpenShift into the enterprise. But it's very differentiable from Kubernetes. And so if you do put that technology into a foundation, then what you have to do is create a new midstream. You have to create something else downstream of it that you do control, that you can brand and that you can sell as a product. And for most small companies, I think that's just a waste of your time. Like you yeah. don't actually get the lift you would expect. I'll use an example that's, again, probably controversial and maybe they'll disagree with me. But like the Linkerd guys who just graduated from the CNCF, Linkerd is an incredible service mesh. It's a great company. They put a ton of value into it. It just graduated from the CNCF. God bless them. But we spent a lot of time talking about Istio and not Linkerd. So was it better or worse that they put it in the foundation? I don't know. I'm not sure what lift they got, which doesn't mean that they didn't get some. For sure they did. And we should have them on a podcast and maybe they talk about what the value <laughs> was. But I think you'd have had, we'd have been just as happy having Linkerd be Linkerd as we did having Linkerd be a CNCF project. Adam, thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Yeah, of course.
Thanks for listening to Built for Devs. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear other episodes like it, please hit subscribe. You can also find more content on our blog at AmplifyPartners.com and on our Twitter at AmplifyPartners. I'm Lenny, and thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.